Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of the Voices of E-Learning. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall with Summit K-12. With me as always is my co-host, Lena Marie Saleh with Canva. Lena, how are you doing today? Doing great. So excited for this episode. I know. We are very excited. This has been a long time in the making. Um, and today's guest is Smita Bakshi. She is the Senior Vice President, Academic Learning with Wiley. Smita, how are you doing today? I'm excellent and excited to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely. And uh, thank you so much for uh, being a fan of the show as well as now a guest. Uh, it's always great to uh, have guests on that have seen the show before and are, are uh, already uh, listeners. Um, before we get started, um, you already know the first question uh, as you've listened to many episodes. Uh, but uh, so you should have a great answer prepared for this. Uh, but as our audience knows, we always ask, um, who are you and what do you love about what you do? Yeah, multifaceted question. I'm an entrepreneur and I'm an edtech enthusiast, um, a lover of, of edtech, lover of education. I'm a mother of three. I'm an immigrant to the US and um, uh, my career has spanned education and technology and business. And um, I think education can really change lives. It can change families. It can change communities and countries. And that's why I love working on, on education specifically. And the work we do within EdTech just allows it to be done at a much greater scale than we could without technology. And I love people. So within the role that I'm currently in, I love kind of seeing what makes people tick and um, being a leader for them and seeing how to grow and develop them and have thriving, innovative, fun work environments. So that's a little bit about me. Perfect. And before we dive into some of the questions for today, give our audience a little background on um, kind of your education journey and, um, you know, the company that you started and all the way up to kind of today's current role. Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in India and um, uh, in between went to Nigeria for four years and uh, was educated there as well in, in West Africa always had a thirst to, once had been outside of India, always had a thirst to, to uh, see more of the world. And uh, I did my undergraduate degree in engineering in India. I really, 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 really wanted to be in the US. It was kind of my, my dream and goal as, as of, I think, many immigrants to be here. Came here for my computer science master's and PhD at UC Irvine. Absolutely loved it. And I decided to join academia following that. So I was a professor at UC Davis for a few years. Um, but, you know, UC D Davis is very close to Silicon Valley and it was the dot-com days and everything was sort of booming and buzzing. And I joined a small um, startup doing uh, computer science. It was chip design software. That's kind of my feel. I, I coded, I developed, I worked with the founder of that company. And I said, wow, you can take this idea and marry it with marketing and sales and take it from a 50 person to like a 300 person company publicly traded in, a, in the few years I was there. And that whole journey, as well as just the buzz of being in Silicon Valley at that time, and even now, is kind of what led me to say, okay, I got to learn a little bit more about business. And I went to business school, came back and worked in um, server configuration software and so on did BD strategy, um, product management. And finally, I said, okay, now let's do something a little bit more relevant to humans than server software and decided to work in education along with my co-founder, Frank, 
Vahid, who's a professor at UC Riverside. And um, the problem we were trying to solve, and really it was his insight and that deep domain expertise that he brought as a computer science professor for almost 15 years at that time, maybe even longer at UC Riverside, that a lot of computer science students don't make it past the first course or maybe the second course, the failure rates are pretty high. And it takes a lot of effort for them to get to that spot. And then it's programming some concept within programming that gets to them and they change majors or they drop out of school. And you know, very simply, that's the problem we were trying to address. And uh, we, we started a company called Zybooks and focusing on that problem, interactive STEM learning, interactive computer science education, just incorporating the learning, the assessments, the student feedback, the scaffolding, replacing traditional textbooks, helping the instructor and the student, and did tons and tons of research along the way to figure out what aspect of it works. We were funded by the National Science Foundation as well. We had several grants, as well as the Department of Education. And uh, we got our company to a point where we were probably used by close to half a million students, um, about six, 700 different um, schools, mostly in the US, higher ed institutions, um, and then decided to join Wiley in 2019 so that we could grow more. And Wiley has really invested within this space, within, within the company, the group. And we have grown only, you know, at, especially with COVID as well, at a faster clip since then. And um, very recently, I took on the role of managing not just computer science and engineering for Wiley, but all, all of the other disciplines that we service and that we serve within Wiley, which is math and chemistry and psychology and other products as well. We have a number of different platforms Wiley Plus and Alta, and I manage that business now. So that's that's my journey. I love your journey, and I think it's really great to um, see that you are all what you are all able to accomplish, especially being a woman in STEM and a woman in STEM in the dot com era, and even now. I think that's like so important to showcase and make sure that we also talk about because it's not, it's not a lot of women in the, in that field, especially in the field of computer science or developing, or really, um, we're starting to see women, obviously more at the top, I guess you would say, but that's just an important thing that I think definitely has to be said. So, um, I love that. I just love your journey and also being an immigrant. I come from an immigrant family as well. So it's just, um, really great to see all that you're able to accomplish and, and um, that's one of the reasons why I loved Austin too, just the buzz of innovation. I think yeah. that that is just also so inspiring to be able yeah. to be around and it makes you want to thrive, I guess you want to say too. Yeah. Yeah. It's so alive. And right now it may be all about crypto or DAOs or whatever might be going on, but there's hardly a conversation you can have. And especially in those days, um, there were a number of us who graduated around, around the same time in computer science and we moved up here. And that's all people spoke of. Like, what are we building? What are we going to innovate? Look at this problem. We can do this. We can, you know, a lot of bad ideas come out as well. But that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. You have to try many times before you before you succeed. But I see such high levels of persistence as well for those who are entrepreneurs here too. If one doesn't work, then they pivot and they pivot and they sort of keep at it. Yeah. yeah. And I think that is an important thing to lead us to our next question is um, 
the work that you do, not only at Zia Books, the work that you've done in your past, and now what you do at looking over all the other verticals at um, Wiley is the future of career connected STEM learning. So how do we see the future of all of those things, ed tech and educational courseware that we see in higher ed and just those changes that are happening? Yeah, I would say that, um, so one is kind of the courseware aspect and the other is career connectedness. Within a course, when some of it is already here, some of it is the future, I think it's, I think all courseware should be like this, really relevant for the student. I keep doing research to figure out what's relevant for the student and what's working. And what we do in accounting maybe is going to be different than what we do in math and what we do in, in computer science. And even, even computer science to IT is different. And even you know physics is different than chemistry. So I feel the courseware, whatever we're providing to students, needs to be fantastic UI. Like why should we have a great user experience here and not in the educational software we use. It should be fantastic. It should scaffold students. When they're stuck on something, they should be able to get help, right? And we, by the way, these are a lot, lot of problems we haven't figured out. If a student is stuck programming at 10 p.m. on a Sunday, they don't really know how to get unstuck. We'd love to solve that problem. Um, it should be customizable. We should figure out the student needs more, the student needs less and be able to kind of adapt that way. So um, I think in terms of STEM, if I were to broadly sort of categorize it, I would say has to be experience-based. You learn by doing. And, um, and that's what we build Zybooks with. It's, it's not a new principle and that's been around forever. Um, but but that technology allows you to implement in really smart ways using simulators and tools and lab environments and so on. So learn by doing, and then as much as possible, as much as makes sense, just adapt it to the environment and to the student. Adaptivity doesn't always make sense, and you know interactivity doesn't always make a huge amount of sense. But generally, I think those in STEM they really work out. Those are the principles I think we should use within within STEM. Um, and then the second part of your uh, question, you asked about, about courseware and then remind me the second part of your question was? Uh, just the future of ed tech. Too. Yeah, I think, um, I think there's a career piece to it. Again, they are very career relevant disciplines. STEM often, those disciplines and they're outside of STEM within business, psychology, et cetera. These are very career connected disciplines. And what we hear from, um, from we recently had a panel of deans within our business line, so business accounting finance between between within that line, and they said, "Listen, parents come to us and say, we don't really care about the degree as much as we care that our son and son or daughter gets a job at the end. So provide us, provide them, provide the students that that um, um, that you're you're teaching the relevant skills." Could be analytics, could be got to know something about blockchain, like all of these career skills that are not part of a curriculum. And within computer science, we have the same thing, right? You don't really learn about AWS or Git or DevOps, like all of the practical aspects that are required for a career. You don't necessarily learn them within a curriculum. So I think there's a, there's a shift that is starting to happen, has to happen with the curriculum has to change. And, um, and then those who are providing education services and content like we are, we have to adapt and change as well. 
And I'll give another example. I was speaking with a colleague of mine who runs our Australia business. And he said, oh, Smith, I, in his nice Australian accent, um, he said he was out on visiting both corporate clients as well as universities. And he realized that the two are not speaking and they want to speak to each other. And this may be, maybe it's more specific to Australia, but the universities there who said, you know, we'd like to know what the skills are and we'd like to know what, what, are, what the corporations need and the, and the corporations similarly, they have a skills gap. So in, depending on where you are in the world, that might be part of the, the issue as well. But really, if I were to summarize it, it's like, like students should be job ready. And within STEM, certainly there are lots of ways to do that. Oh, I was going to say that's certainly been an issue in the U.S. Uh, some studies show as much as 75 percent um, being not job ready, according to employers. Um, and I think we have had um, the issue in in pre-pandemic times um, that there wasn't a lot of communication between corporations and the universities. Um, both kind of thought they knew best. And, and one of the silver linings, one of the many silver linings through the pandemic is I think it did break down a lot of walls by necessity that uh, education institutions and uh, corporate America have started to talk to each other and partner in some ways. Um, and I think part of it is a little bit of pressure applied by corporate America that they're starting to build their own training programs. Google obviously is one that does a lot of uh, free certifications. Um, uh, there's uh, some companies that are even doing joint MBAs that are, I think Bain uh, Capital might be doing one with um, a whole uh, system. And so I think the, the envelope is being pushed and um, the walls have come down through the pandemic that universities and colleges are open, more open now than ever because they need to uh, kind of retool and re-strategize so I think it's an exciting time um, in education that some of those walls are coming down. And I think the end uh, beneficiary of that is the students and the young adults and, you know, all of us uh, that we're going to get a better experience with more relevant content, yeah. but also that we're adopting this lifelong learner mentality now, at hopefully the youngest ages, because it's no longer a nice to have um, for certain people to be lifelong learners, right? We're all going to have to be lifelong learners now. Even those of us that are older generations that uh, are going to have to go back and relearn how to learn in some ways. Um, and so I think that's, you know, we always on this show look for the exciting, optimistic things coming out of this terrible pandemic that we can take and not forget and build momentum around. So uh, give us a little bit of your take um, as it relates to computer science, in particular to um, the, the real world, to the jobs of the future and why um, now more than ever, this is such an important uh, area that we need to all be paying attention to and, um, and putting our time and, and energies into. Yeah, I think um, um, it's technology married with another discipline is where the need is and kind of where the futures are. So if you think about it, something simple like UI, UX, right? Just being able to design an interface, you really need to bring together design and, um, and um, some technical expertise. And the best UI, UX designers, they have that. They can, they can think programming and they can they know the basics of computer science and they have that that passion and skill in design um, i'll give you other examples i was recently actually today on a call where we were talking about finance and it was actually about our business accounting finance line and um, one of one of the our our um, data czars on the call said you know 
what I'm looking for is a combination of financial analysis and deep data analysis. And it's very hard for me to find that skill. You look at epidemiology. You need to know epidemiology, but in order to really make an, even COVID, my, my nephew was actually working in Geneva in epidemiology when COVID first broke out. He was working with the WHO and he's doing Python and R. So if you look at it, the reason I think why, like I cannot think of almost any discipline where um, CS or if not deeply CS, then the, the, the data uh, analysis part is not like doesn't make a meaningful difference. It solves many needs. So I think more than ever, it's relevant because it's the cross-disciplinary along with technology that where the need is and that's going to solve many problems. Name them climate change to smart cities, all of that. Yeah. I think it ties back into what you said earlier about um, just like how ed tech is changing is that it needs to be relatable <laughs> to students. And I think when you tie in the concept with the technology, then it makes it more relatable and it gives them a subset of skills that might not have been traditionally learned. So I think that that's very um, impactful just way to make sure that you're being relatable and a couple other things you said, great UI and great UX. I think that that is an essential thing that we see a lot in ed tech companies is sometimes they have an amazing, amazing product and the UI user experience of what they're seeing on the other side, especially for students to navigate that is a bit tricky. And so you can have the best curriculum ever, but not have it be easy to use and you lose users. Um, in a drop of a hat. Yes. Um, so I definitely think that that is an important thing that we don't talk about enough um, yeah. in the ed tech space. I agree. Well. Simplicity. We we tend to come from from a place where we there are a lot of buttons added, a lot of features, but actually you have to pare it down, and it's tough to pare it down. And we've had huge wars within within our you know little Zybox is not that big of a company or a product like. Um, we could be bigger, but anyway, so, um, but we have wars about keeping that simple paradigm. We have a simple learning paradigm. And um, when we first built an assessment system, part part of our team said, okay, students should click here. That will have them launch the assessment system. And my co-founder said, no, not at all. It has to be a seamless flow. They should go from the learning to their assessment without even realizing it. Let's not make it out of context. It has to be within context. So I agree with you. And I think they call it feature creep, where just over time, you add more features and more features. You want version 2.0, 3.0, but you don't ever take any away typically. And so you end up, I worked with one of the clicker companies way back in my early tech days. And I was with a software company and they talked about how the clickers just kept getting bigger and bigger and more and more buttons to eventually you couldn't find the the play button or you couldn't find the answer button. And they had to like totally redesign. So what advice would you have for uh, ed tech companies that are maybe startup or mid-sized, they're growing fast and they yeah. they want to be all things, all people and add all the features to, you know, sell to everyone, but they may not know it and naively run the risk of, you know, diluting their core, uh, you know, uh, value proposition because they've now kind of spread themselves so thin and we see it with big LMSs and things or even, uh, you know, the sales forces of the world to some degree. It's like, you can do anything, but it takes, you know, weeks yeah. of training to figure out how to log in sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I feel pretty passionate about this topic. And in fact, it's been something we've been discussing within Wiley as well, within just the, the products that I manage. It's actually good to have a point of view. And that point of view is going to be kind of your point of view. So I'll give you know a couple of points. Like as an example, Zybooks has a point of view, which we say less text, more action. So if we're explaining a concept, let's say recursion in computer science, which is a tough concept for students to understand. We have a few lines explaining what it is, few sentences, three, four, five sentences. And then we take students into an animation. And then we have them respond to a question. And then they do a problem. And when an instructor looks at that, they'll say, that's it? That's all you have? You're telling me it's just one or two screenfuls? But this used to be 15 or 20 pages in my textbook. And I want more. And when you're young, a young company, and you're trying to sell, you might be tempted to go back and say, well, let me just add a little bit more text for this instructor or these group, this group of instructors that we're not able to win over. But then we have a point of view, and it is, listen, this, this less text, more action works for this reason. Here's some research. Here's research showing that students' eyes glaze over if you give them more than a paragraph of text. And actually, we have research saying that if you give them 200 students, 200 words, they spend more time reading those 200 words than if you give more than that threshold, they actually spend less time overall. So we have lots of research that, but for those, ins so we don't do it. We say, no, it's, we're not gonna do it. Or for instance, within the Zybooks world, we got asked for adaptivity and we have very limited forms of adaptivity. We don't take students out and say, hey, you don't really know calculus, so let us teach you calculus. We just don't do that. That's again, a point of view. So I think, and within Alta, which is another um, product within, within, the, within the Wiley family, that point of view is adaptivity. And it's a strong point of view. And there's a certain way that Alta does chemistry and, and math trying to figure out what the students' gaps are and so on. So my recommendation for anyone who's sort of starting off or is building an edtech product is to have an informed point of view, keep doing research, trying to figure out how you improve that. And then when you have those who come and say, could you please print this iBook for me, which we've done once, it was spiral bound, it was this thick because we actually printed it out, is just say no, because you are going to come out with an inferior product if you try to kind of make it, make it work for everyone. It's gonna work for no one at the end. And, and I love that you brought up research um, because in development, uh, you know that almost anything is possible with enough time and money, but obviously those are finite resources. And so how do you decide what are the best things to develop and how does research play a part in that? Because research has uh, evolved over uh, the years, right? It used to be really time intensive and expensive and a lot of people still think that. Um, and so how does research play, I guess, pre-production of what you're going to build? And then also I'm curious, how do you position research to the market as far part of marketing that, you know, your solutions are set out to solve this problem, to help these students. And then we've tracked it and it actually does. And, and this is the impact it's having. Yeah. I think we are fortunate in that the company was founded with folks with a research background, both myself. I did research for a number of years. Um, as a professor, as a grad student, and then my co-founder ha has been, you know, working along with grad students on research. So we just never thought to do this kind of without that basis of research. It just 
didn't even strike us. So um, how we've used research and we use it is that we have a lot of faculty who work either they have, they have left academia and are working with us full time or they work with us 20, 30, 40, 50% of that time. So we have in-house, we have faculty who really just care about computer science and computer science education and computer science success. A number of PhD students as well, including some who have done their degrees in engineering education, degrees in CS education, which by the way, did not exist. Like 10, 15 years ago, those departments did not exist, but they now do. And then these folks are working, working within Zybook. So right from the get-go, I remember, I'm not a salesperson, when the very first summer I was trying to um, get Zybooks out, I would call and say, hey, professor, we're working on this new thing. And would you like to give it a try? And if they, um, some of them said, but how do you know it works? And we didn't have the studies. We knew through some proof of concepts and like 60, 90 student classes that the feedback was great. So like very early on, we knew we had to do research as well. We did a couple of different types. One is control studies that you can set up more easily where you can go in and speak with an instructor who's going to be teaching, let's say a certain topic and say, hey, how about next week we set up a, a classroom, your students will come in and we'll do some um, um, AB, AB comparisons. We'll do a pretest, we'll give half of them a textbook, half of them a Zybook and have them study the material, do a post test, and then we'll kind of compare. So those kinds of studies are relatively easy to do. You still need to um, make sure you go through IRB approval and make sure you're doing kind of things correctly within a university environment, but there's randomized data and so on. You randomize student information and those are easier to do. And we've done a number of those to show that the lower quartile of students, they do the best. They have dramatic improvements, like 60, 65% improvements in that one learning objective that we were we were testing. Um, and then the, the, the other studies that are take more time, like doing semester over semester comparisons. And I think it's really important, even though they take a lot of time for for especially with when you're talking about learning outcomes and saying you improve learning outcomes, to be able to test that out. And if you can't test that out, then you kind of we don't have the right to say that, right? Or we can say it in a very controlled, limited sense. Um, and then in terms of how you market or use it is, is peer-reviewed peer conferences and journals, right? There's lots of papers we've had accepted, and there's lots that haven't been accepted, but the ones that have, they're peer-reviewed by the, by the community, and they're up on a website, as an example, cybooks.com slash research. We just list everything there. And um, so we don't have to say very much. We say here. And by the way, the studies, too, are on aspects of pedagogy that you can test. For instance, you could, you could give students one big lab, programming lab, at the end of a week to do, or you could give them lots of little ones to do, and you can compare and you can do A-B tests between is this approach better or this approach better. And then once there's enough statistically significant data behind it, then publish it and sort of lead the community in a direction that we believe is going to be more successful for computer science students. As just that, sorry, I keep talking a lot about Zybooks because I've been immersed in it for many years, but the, I think these principles just apply to any aspect of ed tech um, and courseware. Yeah, I, but I think it's really great to hear of 
your perspective of how it changed from Zybox? Because I think that's also what led you to where you are now. So I just think it's important to tie into your findings and those types of things. So speaking of that, um, you talked to us a little bit about the leadership that you have within EdTech and how you can use that to basically grow your business, scale, and also to keep innovating as you basically grow your products. Um, yeah, you're saying generally, like, uh, it, it, yeah. Or just in your experience, what do you, what types of approaches or things have you taken to you? Yeah. You've shown great leadership. So how, how can someone do that? Yeah. I think getting the basics, right. Um, if you start with a, with a, with firstly a real problem, a real need, and you deeply understand it. Like having that, I think that domain expertise is really helpful and it's it's essential. Um, and again, it's not just, it's maybe it, you can generalize it to anything, not just education, right? You deeply understand that problem and you're solving a real problem. That's the basic. And I, I always think if you get that product market fit right, you have the need and you have a, have a product that's uniquely addressing that need in the best possible way. Then I feel everything else just, and I would tell my team this all the time, everything else will fall in place, right? So um, if you have that right, then it's easy to go to an instructor and say, hey, why don't you try this instead? Because your students will benefit. You can, it's easy to go to a student and say, hey, this is going to be 60 bucks. And actually it's better than the free or the pirated copy or whatever you might get, because this will help you. And it's good for universities and institutions. And everything just, again, falls in place. So I always say, just start with that product market fit, knowing you're doing a great problem, working on a great, great. And then there, I mean, I think at tech specifically, our markets are very distributed. They're complex because within higher ed, as an example, you have the concept of academic freedom and there's a lot of good to it, but there's some aspects that actually slow down the, the spread of innovation as well, because there is academic freedom. So every instructor can, can, can choose how they want to teach, whether or not deep down they know it's the best way, but they have the, the ability and the flexibility to do that. If you go to K-12, you, you have to approach districts and that's another kind of beast. So I think within EdTech, what, what my advice always is, is to really persevere. Once you get that product market fit, it's, I don't think it's overnight success, but you can get long-term success. You can get long-term success by having that solution and then getting creative in terms of adapting it for different markets, what international needs, what, what, um, what the UK needs is a little bit different from Australia, which is going to be different from here. And you have to adapt to that market. And once you have that, I think that could be a little flywheel going that can, that can help with expansion. Yeah, and I want to shift gears just a little bit as we're running out of time. Uh, there's one more topic I want to cover. Um, talk to us about ways to support academic integrity. Wow, hot topic these days, yes. Right. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Again, I was um, telling Lena at the, at the start when we were chatting that as COVID happened, the need for us to do something about it and support our instructors where an instructor could legitimately be able to um, differentiate students who have put in more effort, who know the material better, to you know, give out just the grading system. An A means an A, a B means a B. And it is an instructor's responsibility 
to make sure they're doing that. And, and, you know, several instructors came to us and said that as things moved online completely and assessments were online, like help us. Like we know that there are lots of ways to cheat the system and there's lot and students do it. And um, so what that's kind of three different approaches that we took. We, by the way, we changed our roadmap substantially to kind of focus on that, on uh, academic integrity. Um, on the on the technology front, um, we, as an example, started working on highly super randomized um, problems um, that are also auto-graded. So again, recursion, you could test it, but then you can change the variables and give slightly different variations of the problem. So those could be used within um, to, to give out quizzes and for homeworks and so on. So highly randomized, we call them golden challenge activities in our environment um, and then auto-graded as well. And giving instructors also um, knowing that they, that, you know, making sure that it's credible, right? that we're actually doing it and being able to, to test that. Um, we started doing, gathering a lot of metrics to show what students are actually doing. Um, and then letting instructors know and, and for instructors to let students know, hey, we can see what you're doing. We can see that you did this programming assignment and you got it right the very first instant. And you do that every time. Or no, you tried, you got this right, you got that wrong, you try it again. We, we call that a coding trail. And we actually publish or we put out that coding trail with every lab activity. And an instructor can see that and students can see that. So there was one kind of just within the product, just, just uh, plagiarism checking, things like that. The second was um, um, just uh, instructor education as well. Best practices of what works and what doesn't work. And these may not be tech specific, for instance, being very clear to students as to what cheating really means or what is academic integrity. Sometimes there isn't that clarity. For instance, if you look up a solution um, on the web and you, you copy paste it in, is that considered cheating or not? Is that is that and and actually having students do a quiz, not necessarily day one, could, could be week two or week three, and then talking to them about the importance and actually what academic integrity is. So once um, our instructors, my co-founder, other folks tried these, then again we you know we have several three about five six thousand instructors in computer science who use iBooks, so we're able to kind of share that best practice as well. And then third is lots of research again around student behavior, what's working and not. So it's a it's a topic area that we really really care about, and we're still spending a lot of effort on it. We think it's the responsibility of edtech providers to um, to allow instructors in turn to be able to offer high integrity solutions. Yeah, and on that note, we'll end on a, a hopefully a more positive note than that. Um, Talk to us about the importance of failure in you know, computer science and in education and learning from failures and talk about the iterative process, even starting a new company, right? It, there's plenty of failures along the way. And so uh, I don't know if this is taking us in the direction of competency-based learning versus standardized testing, but um, it, it does seem to be, you know, at the higher ed level, catching on more and more that uh, you want to build something and building things is messy and it takes iteration. And I think that's permeating down into the high school and the, the K-12 space as well. But give us some hope for the future. Is that something we're going to see more of? And and how can we harness that um, 
that spirit of innovation through failure and through iteration and persistence? Yeah, it's a great question. And I could do another hour on that topic. Um, I mean, I think at the heart of it all is the growth mindset, and that's been well understood. And um, if there are ways that we can, from an early, early age, from my son who's little, and I can see instances where he doesn't seem to have the growth mindset because he seems to do this when he feels he's wrong and kind of shut down. I can see that, right? As educators and parents, we can see that. And if we can have that concept of growth mindset from that age is it doesn't matter. You're just going to try again. It just means you're going to try again. And, um, and then that permeates hopefully elementary education into, into high school, into college. There's a lot of fear of failure. And I think, um, so what some of our tools can do in education technology is to provide environments where, um, they're not punitive where there's lots of feedback given, hey, you got this right for this reason, you got this wrong for this reason. And don't worry, here, try again, try again. And let students control, have agency as well <clears throat> within that, that process and know that, you know, there's the concept of, of failure um, that everyone fails, right? We all fail. I don't think we talk enough about it. I think we could be doing more because there still is, even me as a mother, there still is a lot of focus on results and outcomes. We just tend to sort of gravitate towards that. And within education and being an entrepreneur as well, I think they're those who have succeeded when I might have given up. And they succeeded because they just persisted and they persisted and the, the failure didn't, didn't phase them. So I think within us as a parent, as an educator, as an ed tech, as an entrepreneur, as a leader, like it's such an important concept and not easy to master, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you ask any tech entrepreneur that has ended up on the successful side of things, um, you know, how they do it, they'll be honest and tell you a lot of failure, a lot of failing fast, a lot of failing forward, a lot of pivoting and, you know, starting in one place and ending up somewhere totally different. And so hopefully to all of our listeners out there today, um, you know, take that message back into your schools, your districts, your households, um, that failure is a part of uh, growth and life, and we need to embrace it um, and and put it to good use and not be afraid of it. So unfortunately, this is the end of our time for today. Uh, but thank you so much for joining this episode. We will have you back on uh, either later this year or next year. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you for bringing your, your thoughts and your insights into this conversation today, Smita. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it, JW and Lena. Thank you very much. Yeah, I was going to say, Lena, thank you so much for, you know, co-hosting <laughs> today. We'll edit this out uh, and I'll just pause right now. Lena, I want you to take it home. I didn't even put our um, closing on there. So you take us home. I'll take it home. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Uh, so thank you again uh, to Lena for co-hosting today. As always, uh, we couldn't do this without you. Um, and thank you to the audience for uh, joining another episode of Voices of E-Learning. We love engaging and interacting with you uh, through social media and getting your comments and thoughts and feedback. Please keep those coming. Be sure to check out past episodes at marketscale.com or anywhere you consume your podcast. Uh, thank you again for uh, listening and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you and always, always keep learning. <laughs>